All right. Well, we are glad you are here. My name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Branches. It is a beautiful day outside, which I get to rub in the face of my friend in Tennessee who probably has cold weather and snow today, and we get to enjoy sun, so I'm excited. Um, We're going to be in 1 Peter 3, so if you want to find your way there in whatever device or book or whatever you have, that you will be handling that. Um, On the times when I get to, I've been preaching, it's kind of been this mini-series that I've been doing through 1 Peter, and uh, we are all the way at 1 Peter 3, so we're trudging our way through it, and this one's going to be a fun one. Um, But if you could get to 1 Peter 3, um, when my wife and I uh, were planning to get married, um, which was, I was thinking about it this morning, was... 24, almost 25 years ago, which means we're kind of old now. Um, and so the things, that, the example I'm going to use in just a second sounds really dated, uh, but it's, it's the truth. I can't change the truth. I'm the Smithsonian. Um, when we were planning our wedding, I had the responsibility, the only responsibility I had was to plan the honeymoon. And um, back then in the old days, we would not go on a little TV set. We would have to go to a place where they had these paper things called brochures. And in these brochures were pictures of um, what all these things that we could do. And I found this one. I thought it would be amazing. She, she liked to travel, so we would leave the country and go down to Mexico on a cruise. And the brochure was amazing. It was full of these pictures of all these people having fun. They were fit. They were tan. They were healthy. They, they looked amazing. The excursions looked just so tropical and beautiful. Like everything about it just screamed like this is, this is going to be like we'll have the wedding and then the honeymoon is going to be so much more amazing because I planned this amazing tropical trip. And we roll into Long Beach and we look at this boat. It's a gray day. And I'm thinking, okay, it's, it's going to get better once we leave port. We walk on and we are the youngest people on the boat. We are the thinnest people on the boat. And we as pale, I think Gina and I are probably the palest people we know. We were the tannest people on the boat. And we're going to head out on this. And I'm thinking, man, this doesn't match up. But I remember that there was food everywhere in the brochure. So we were excited about that part. So we decided, all right, well, we were going to spend all this money. We're going to stay. We'll get on the boat. And off we go. And we had the first meal where you have to sit with strangers. It's lots of fun. And then there's going to be food everywhere. We were told there's food everywhere. We couldn't find food anywhere. We ended up in the teen center, which was empty because, like I said, we were probably the youngest people on the boat. And we were eating those little mini frozen pizzas and pretzels. That was what we were trying to survive on because that's all they had except the mealtime. And we were told there would be food everywhere. Okay, it's got to get better when we get to Mexico. So we get to Mexico, and you, it, you sail overnight, and then you wake up in this harbor. And ours had the little porthole window, and I looked out, and I swear it was sewage. She says it's just the fuel from the boats, but it looked like sewage out the window. That's not the first thing you want to see when you're on this tropical trip. And so that's where I'm starting at. And the sun's kind of up, so it's reflecting off the foul stench of the water. And we have agreed to go on an excursion. So we're going to take an excursion into the tropical beauties of this place. And they take us into the city to all these little tourist traps. She could see that I'm not doing well with this at this point as a lovely spouse of a crazy person. And she recommends, why don't we go back to the ship? Now, I don't know where the ship is. She's like, no, we'll just get a cab. 
In other words, let's get murdered. Let's get a serial killer to drive us out into nowhere and kill us. But I, I said, okay, I will trust that the Lord is faithful and he will get us back to the ship full of overweight, pale, old people. And we did, and we went back. And it was nothing like the brochure said. The brochure told me that it was going to be this amazing time, but what we actually experienced was something else. And in my mind, I think that's false advertising. I thought that was false advertising. That's not the trip that they promised me in the brochure. But I think as Christians, we tend to do that when we share our faith with people. We tell people, man, it's going to be great. Your life's going to change, and it's going to be better for you. Not always. Not if you've read the Bible. There's no guarantee of that. In fact, the one guarantee we find is that we're going to suffer. And that's what First Peter's doing in, I mean, Peter's doing in First Peter. He's telling us about this suffering. Um, we, we tend to sell a Christianity that is far from what it is. We are stepping into minefields. We are stepping into the trenches. It's not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. This is not always the easiest thing. We are going to face hardships. Gina and I had a friend at a, what we met at another church, and she had told us her story. Um, she, was, she was raised in a Buddhist home, and the minute that she was called by Jesus and she accepted that call, her life went completely south. Her parents disowned her, kicked her out of the house. She had no place to live. She had no vehicle to drive anymore because that was mom and dad's. They wanted nothing to do with her, and they shut her completely out of their lives. So she's stranded alone. Luckily, she found a community of faith who just embraced her and loved her and showed her like how much God's love is. But the truth is, when we come, across, come against the world, they're very hostile at times to Christianity. It's counterculture, and you may suffer. So if I were writing this letter, if instead of 1 Peter, it was 1 Stephen, I think the letter would look a lot different. Um, I think it would be very short because I wouldn't have much to say, but it wouldn't be very kind and loving. And I think if in my sinful nature I wrote this to a group of people who were going through persecution for their faith and would continue in even more ways of going through persecution in their faith, it might sound a little more like this. I would spend the first part of it sympathizing with them. I would, I would just lay out like, I'm so sorry that this is happening to you. This sucks for you, and I wish it wouldn't happen. And then I would transition into a time where I'd be like, you know what you should do is get away from those people that are doing that to you. Circle the wagons to the people who you know who are going to tell you nice things, and let's get together. And I may go so far as to join Job's friends and say, curse God and die. This isn't worth it. I just, just give up. This isn't worth doing anymore. Thankfully... I am not Peter, and I did not write this book. He wrote to a group of people who had been scattered throughout, who were being persecuted for their faith, and you would expect that to be full of sympathy and comfort and encouragement, which there are elements of in 1 Peter. But that's not what dominates the book. Instead, we're going to find marching orders. We find we don't spend as much time dwelling on our pain and our suffering we find a list of things that we should be doing as believers. We need to get to work. There are things to be done. And he calls, he reminds them of who they are in Christ and then what they should be doing as Christians. In chapter 1, he reminds them of who they are. They were born into a living hope and what they are called to. They're called to be holy. And in that, he calls them to love one another. This applies to us. 
We are called into a living hope, and we are holy, and we are to love one another. In chapters 2 and 3, again, he reminds them of their identity, who they are in Christ, and then he calls them to live like that. They're told that in the midst of their suffering, they are to submit to authority, that the citizens, we have citizens that submit to government, we have servants that submit to masters, we have husbands that submit to wives. And as chapter 3 wraps up, believers are called to suffer for righteousness' sake. And he addresses their identity as the children of God. He calls them to base their actions, reactions, and responses not on what they are suffering, but who they are as children of God in suffering. So this is a call to gospel business, to get to work. And sympathy is an appropriate response to suffering. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying be heartless here. But we all know what happens when we start to dwell on suffering, when our focus becomes inward. We start to look at our suffering, we start to focus on our suffering, we stop focusing on the world, we stop focusing on God, and we look to ourselves. And it magnifies that impact on us. But Peter and the Holy Spirit encourage the believers to not let their suffering define them and to remind them of who they are as children of God. So in the passage that we study today, Peter's going to remind them that suffering is a part of the Christian walk. But if they can focus on who they are and who they serve, their suffering can be used for good. And then he's going to encourage the readers that God's work on the cross was effective and victorious. So we're going to read the text, um, 1 Peter 3, and we're going to be in, oh dear, how about this? 1 Peter 3.13, and if you guys would stand with me while we read this, um, we go to sporting events, and we stand and cheer for our team, and we go to concerts, and we stand, and we sing along, and we cheer, and we cheer, and we yell, and we, we do all that stuff, and then we come to church, and we sit down, and we have the most amazing news in the world, word, world. We have God's word, living and active and powerful, and we just sit down and take it passively. So we're going to stand as, a, as an active part of this while we read this passage. So if you guys would follow along as I read this passage. We're going to be in verse 13. We're going to go all the way to 22. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring to us, us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not know, did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord for us. Please have a seat. Let me pray as we uh, get, jump, jump into this passage. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that you have given us. Um, it's not always easy to hear. It's not always easy to understand, but you've given it to us. And it is a way that you've communicated with us. I pray that today as we open this passage and we go into it, that any untrue things that I will say will be forgotten and that your truth will be made known. That you would put me far away from this so that your words would be very clear. 
I pray that as we go through this, um, Holy Spirit, you would open our, our hearts to hear those areas in our lives where we need to be encouraged and need to change. Um, and I pray for those people who are here um, that they would be encouraged by your words, that we would have the knowledge of who you are and who we are in light of you. In your name we pray, amen. All right. Um, we're going to do this in two parts. We're going to cover 13 through 17 first and kind of talk about what Christians need to hold on to to equip them and defend against suffering in this hostile world. And then, sorry, and then we're going to look at 18 through 22 and see our hope in Christ's victory. So in 13 through 17, um, we see kind of several things I want to highlight. I want to pull them out to, to see how, what can we hold on to as we suffer? Because we do suffer. And when I talk about suffering, specifically in this passage, I'm talking about suffering for righteousness, suffering as a believer. As a Christian, those things that happen to you, those things that are, that are a struggle for you, um, you don't get that job um, because you won't participate in certain activities with the rest of the team or with the boss. Um, you may lose relationships with friends because maybe you're not, gonna, you're not willing to, to joke around in a way that they joke around. But when you stand up for what is what the, the, the scriptures say to do, to be a believer, to say I'm different, and there is suffering that comes from that. That's what we're talking about. And some of these will apply to suffering across the board, but what, I want to make sure that we understand in context what Peter's talking about. Um, so the first one is a passion for goodness. Uh, verse 13 says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you look at the passage right above that, um, it, he's, he's quoting out of Psalm 34. And I'll just read it to you. In verse 10, he says, Whoever desires to love life, to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Um, these are the things that are good. He talks about keeping your talk pure and life-giving, to turn away from evil, turning toward peace. These are good things. Um, goodness is kind of referred to, if you look at like a definition of it or so much, if your life, it's a life characterized by generosity, unselfishness, kindness, and thoughtfulness. The world has no problem with those things. In fact, um, the world loves to go after those who take advantage of people who can't take, take care of themselves. If you look at how the world, non-Christians, Christians alike, if someone's doing harm to someone who is at a disadvantage, we go after them. We don't like people who harm children. We don't like people who harm animals. We don't like people who are hurting people that are, don't have the same abilities we do or a smaller group, whatever. The world goes after that. When he talks about being zealous for what is good, he's saying they won't come after you. People will not persecute you for doing what is good like that when you have this life characterized by generosity, unselfishness, kindness, and thoughtfulness. In fact, we're even called in the scriptures to be good. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For good works. Colossians 1.10 says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Proverbs 3.27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your, in your power to do it. Psalm 37.3 says, trust in the Lord and do good. 
dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, and God is able to make grace around you, so having all sufficiency in all, in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This should be our passion. We should have God's love for good. We should have his heart for good. Um, and it has a way of changing behavior. Like being good and doing those things has a way of changing behavior. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your good works should reflect the glory back up towards him. So they see these things. Romans 12.21, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, remember the order that this is supposed to come in, though. We're not doing the good to gain merit with God. Because he loves us, we do the good. It's, we, the good isn't going to do anything for you in your relationship with him. The good is an outward working of what he's done in you. And so that's what the world needs to see. Being zealous for what is good means that we have a heart for God's heart, that we love what he loves. We are turning our desires and appetites from those of the world to those of our Father. And he says in there, who's going to come against you with that? Who's going to, who's going to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? So that's, that's the first thing we need to hold on to as we walk through suffering, that if we're doing good, that we're most likely not going to have that kind of harm against you. But we move on to the next one. We need to be willing to suffer for right and for wrong. Um, if we look in verse 14, it says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And in verse 17, it says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. When I was in fifth grade, I teach fifth grade, by the way, so this is a funny story as I thought about it again. It's amazing how things come out when you start to prepare stuff. But I teach fifth grade, and I was in fifth grade when I did this. Um, that was a bad year for me. I did some horrible, horrible things. One I'm willing to share with you. Um, we, I had a small group of people who thought that I could be a leader of some kind, and we were, I don't know what was going on in my life at the time, but I had horrible, horrible thoughts and had horrible things that I wanted to get done. Classrooms were all connected in one long row, and we had a music teacher who was a bit forgetful. Don't take this the wrong way, but he was kind of artistic, so he didn't always pay attention to all the details, like that there were empty closets where fifth graders could hide. So we realized that he wasn't aware of that, and we could hide in his classroom. So I had a group of friends, <laughs> co-conspirators, who would get in the closet. We got in the closet one day, and we closed the door, and he left class. He didn't do the math on like, hey, there should be something like, I'm always aware in my classroom if there's another human in there, I need them out. But he was not aware, and he left the classroom. And we got in there, and we realized we could do some damage. And so we did some damage to some of the equipment in there, and then we saw a door. And we realized that door went to another room. And we opened the door, and we got in. And it must have been, I don't know how we got in this room at the time, but it was a teacher's lounge, but there were no teachers in it. But there was coffee. And so we thought, oh, coffee would be awesome if you pour it on people's work. So we got these coffee mugs, and we're like, well, where do we go with this? There's another door. And it went into the classroom next to it which was my brother's classroom. Oh, yes. It must have been close to open house. This just gets worse and worse as I tell this story. I feel like I'm, I'm going to be, that's just my confession. Um, it must have been open house. And so as a teacher, open house is a big deal. Like you're kind of showing off to 
let all the parents see all the cool stuff that you as a teacher have done for their children. And so all of their art projects were out. All of their work was out and ready to go. And they had done these cool paper mache things. So they'd blown up a balloon and then they'd cover it and then they let it, the air out. And so they're, they're really fragile and they're sitting there and they're covered with paint. And we thought, well, let's cover those with coffee first. So we poured coffee all over those. But they were still standing there. So if you put them on the ground, you can smash them. So we smashed them. And then we poured coffee and other items all over the chairs. Well, needless to say, we got in trouble for this. And as the ringleader, I got in the most trouble for this. And I was suspended for a couple days. My mom didn't know what to do with me. And so her only response was, you're going to get in trouble when your father gets home. Go outside and pick weeds. And so the rest of the afternoon, I was out picking weeds in the yard, out of the grass or whatever. I don't even know if we had weeds, but I was out there pulling things out of the soil. <laughs> My dad got home, and I don't remember any of the things that happened at that point. So I'm sure that some discipline occurred. And then the punishment for the next day since I was suspended, my mom did not have to stay home from work. She worked at a little, um, like a drugstore kind of a thing. And so... They had a downstairs basement, which was dark and dingy, with a couple lights. I had to go there and do my homework. So I went there and did my homework, and my mom would come down occasionally to check that I was working, and she would bring me beer nuts. I don't know if you've ever had beer nuts before, but they're not tasty, and they're not sweet. They're just nasty. And so that was the only treat I got. I was punished for my crime. And you would probably agree that I deserved my punishment. I had done something wrong. And we would generally agree, but this passage tells us that, yeah, that's going to be something we should be okay with, is that you should suffer for doing things wrong. But you could also suffer for doing things that are not, for doing good. This, he talks about a blessing in 14. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And it says, it is better to suffer for doing good. That blessing he talks about is an inheritance that he mentioned all the way back in 1-4, which is this eternal inheritance that we would have. When we're following Jesus, we may suffer for doing the right thing, for saying, no, I'm not going to talk about that. No, I'm not going to look at that. No, I'm not going to participate in that. We may suffer. There may be some consequences for that. The suffering that we go through is evidence of a future inheritance. It's evidence of good works in a, a hostile countercultural world. There's nothing that can be done that's going to remove this inheritance that we have been promised. Life here is temporal. The suffering that we go through here is temporal. Our life with him is eternal in Jesus. And as difficult as this sounds, we have nothing to fear or be troubled if we are suffering for righteousness. In fact, and this may sound strange, but the worst thing that could happen to us is that we could die and go on to our inheritance. The worst thing that could happen, because in, in America, seriously, the biggest thing that we generally suffer through is maybe a loss of a job, is a loss of relationship, is a loss of friendship, maybe even a loss of some status that we've seen ourselves in. There are places around the world where that could mean a loss of life for what you believe. But even there, the worst thing that could happen to you in this temporal place that we are, is that we would die and go on to our inheritance. Again, this isn't that, hey, uh, the sympathy thing. We're saying, look, you may suffer, and really good chance as a Christian you will suffer. But your hope is beyond here. 
Your hope is beyond this temporal time. Can you imagine what our lives would be like if we actually believed the words I just said to you? If we, how, how strong would you be emboldened to share good news if you believed what I just said? That the worst thing that could happen is that you could go on to your inheritance with God and be with the Savior. If we believed that the worst thing that could happen to us would not separate us from Christ, would we do something different? I mean, we're so afraid of the opinions of man. I know, like, sitting down at dinner sometimes at a restaurant, I'm like, okay, waitress is gone. Let's pray real quick before she gets back. Okay, she's back. Like, I'm afraid to pray in front of her. Why? I'm afraid of man over the love of my father. And I'm not even risking death. We need to remember that the Savior we serve and our inheritance, and we need to live boldly for him regardless of this suffering or persecution, even if we're suffering for what is good. The third thing that we should hold on to is in verse 15, the first part. It's a devotion to Jesus. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord as holy. This is authentic submission to him. This is in our hearts. This is at home, alone, with no one around. It's not here at church with my hands raised, taking notes, looking very holy and biblical. It's what do I truly believe? Where is my devotion, honestly, when I go to the depths of my heart and say that? Is that, is my submission to him? Is my devotion to him? Is he still Lord? Because what comes out of our heart is what comes out of us. If it's true in here, it should be coming out. Our cry should be, Jesus is my king. He alone is holy and worthy of my praise. Our actions flow out of that. Matthew 12, 34 talks about it. He says, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. What we are feeling in here, our devotion to Christ, is going to come out. The overflow of authentic submission and worship to our king is what I'm talking about. And that leads to our next point. When that is coming out, when we have this overflow of, of devotion to Christ, what comes out next is the second part. It's a readiness to defend our faith. In 15b, it says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is apologetics. It's defending. And remember, we're talking about in the context of being persecuted. It's not just enough to suffer, but we need to share our hope. When you're being persecuted, when things are going wrong and you're suffering for it and you still have hope, that's weird. That should be weird to our world. Why are you still okay? You lost your job. You've been disassociated from your family. Why are you still okay? Why do you still love this God? Because of our inheritance. Because we know that is where we are spending eternity. This is an upside-down kingdom that Jesus lives in. It is, not, it is countercultural to the world that we live in right now. And so the context of this leads us to believe that at some point the persecutors would be asking that question, and we need to be able to get ready to give a defense. Now, do you need to have, you know, a doctorate in theology to do that? No. You need to understand why you believe what you believe, and so you should be in the Word. You should be with fellow believers sharpening one another to defend it, but you should be able to give a reason for this hope you have. Why are you hopeful? Oh, I just do it because it's her tradition. And maybe it's not authentic. If you truly have an authentic relationship, you should have a reason for that hope. And maybe it's just a matter of knowing, not knowing how to word it. And that's great. 
That's what your brothers and sisters are for. That's why we do community, is so that we can do that. We can talk with one another and share those things and be able to, to practice giving a defense for it. This hope that we have, this hope in the midst of what appears to be hopelessness, I mean, can you imagine suffering with no hope? You can start to see some of the reasons why people respond the way they do in violence, in taking lives, in taking their own lives. There's no hope. But the hope that we have, this reason for our hope that we are defending, is that we have a future inheritance. This is not it. We're not done at our last breath. That's just the beginning. This hope frees us to be bold and courageous. Fear of man shuts our mouth, but the love of God opens it. We need to be reminding ourselves of who he is and checking our hearts so that we can defend it. And the next point that we should hold on to is a pure conscience. In verse 16 says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Notice again, it's not that you're being slandered for being a jerk. You're not doing something stupid. It says your good behavior in Christ they're reviling that you're doing things that are good for Christ. Good conscience. So everyone, we do this conscience thing. What is your conscience? Everyone, even non-Christians, have this innate sense of right and wrong. Uh, Romans 2.14 says, So when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. This conscience that we have either accuses or excuses our behavior. That's where shame is born. Um, and so what we're talking about is that part of us that says, these things that I'm doing, am I doing them for Christ? And that's a good thing. Or am I doing it for man? That might not be a good thing. And that's where we have this conscience. If what I'm doing is right, and it is because I believe that the Holy Scriptures are true and that my Father in heaven loves me, and I'm doing this because of that, then when the slander and the reviling comes on, I'm good because I know that I'm not doing anything that deserves that. My conscience is clear. But if not, my conscience is telling me, ah, you know what? I don't, I don't know. And what's interesting about this conscience thing, it is not a spiritual gift. Um, this is a human faculty. And I love John MacArthur, a pastor, he equates this to a skylight rather than a lamp. And I like that difference because a lamp generates its own light. And that would be this, this idea that I can create my own sense of morality. I can create my own sense of right and wrong. But I like the skylight thing because we have a skylight. We used to have a skylight. We don't have a skylight anymore. We need to get a skylight. We used to have a skylight in our kitchen. And on a bright day, the room was flooded with light. But on a cloudy day, it was kind of gray and, and dingy. And so what this conscience is is that it's taking in this moral light. So the brighter it is, the more morality or the more goodness that it brings in, the brighter it's going to be. Um, think about what you're filling that conscience with. If you're filling it with the scriptures, if you're filling it what is true and right, then you're going to have a great kind of calibration to God's heart. But if you're not filling it with that, you're going to change the way that that looks and may not, your good and bad may not line up with the truth of good and bad. When we are suffering as a believer with a true understanding that it is not punishment for wrong, our consciousness tells us, our conscious, not consciousness, our conscience tells us that it is not a punishment for wrong, but rather for being faithful to Jesus, 
then it's clear, and we can suffering in its true light. It's a temporary faithfulness that will lead to our future hope of an inheritance with God. We are being faithful right now for a little bit to spend forever with him. This goes both ways. Those that persecute and cause Christians to suffer may be put to shame as well. As they think about, like, oh, what, have I'm, what I'm doing to this person, at that moment, their, their conscience could be pricked at that point, and they could become very aware of it. Or, on judgment day, they will be placed to put to shame. Either way, at some point, they're going to come face to face with what they've done. And then finally, we're going to revisit 17 just briefly. A reason for our hope is what we should hold on to. Again, it says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. If we realize that Christian suffering is a privilege, again, we need to see that as the fact that Satan's not going after anybody who's doing nothing. If you're doing nothing, you're no threat to him. No reason to attack. We need to remember 8.28, Romans 8.28, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God in order to see those sufferings as a, pl- as a part of God's plan and prepare ourselves, prepare ourselves for the promise and hope of our inheritance with him. We need to be reminded that this is part of something greater than us. This suffering is, is bigger. There is a Puritan writer named Thomas Watson, and I, I saw this quote, and I wanted to read it to you as we kind of wrap up this first section before we transition. He says this, Afflictions work for good as they make way for glory. Not that they merit glory, but they prepare for it. As plowing prepares the earth for a crop, so afflictions prepare and make us ready for glory. The painter lays his gold upon dark colors, so God lays the dark colors of affliction, then he lays the golden color of glory. The vessel is first seasoned before the wine is poured into it. The vessels of mercy are first seasoned with affliction, and then the wine of glory is poured in. Thus we see afflictions are not prejudicial, but beneficial to the saints. This hope that we have, this hope that we're holding on to, leads us to the final section for today because our hope is in Christ's victory. We're going to move into 18 and 22 where that is the case, where we saw the suffering that we're going to go through, the things we need to hold on to. So how can we make it through that? How can we make it through these sufferings? It's telling us that we need to do it. It's giving us an imperative of these are the things you should do. But what is the indicative? What is it that's telling us that we can get through this? And what it is is that Christ was victorious. When I started looking into this passage a few weeks ago, I've been tracking through the first Peter, and I got to this spot, and I just hit a dead end. And so I started thinking, I'm going to call Israel. I need to get out of this passage. We got, I'm, maybe I'll do a parable. Maybe I'll do a story from the Old Testament. I don't want to hit verse 18 through 22. It's brutal. And I started talking to Gina about it, and she's an amazing wife, and she's encouraging me. You've tr- started this way. God's going to be faithful as you continue on, and you're going to walk through it. But I want you to know and be honest with you, as we get to this next section, it's tough. And we're not going to get lost in the weeds because I want to stay in context of what it is we've been studying about suffering and our hope. But I do want to address that there are some things in here that are difficult. And as I, as I said, I was struggling with this, and I felt a lot of weight about like, this on me. Like, man, I'm going to be sitting, standing up in front of guys who've been to seminary, guys who studied this stuff, these great theologues in the room, and I'm going to get up here, and I'm going to stumble all over this messy passage. And then I read something. And this dude said, a wonderful text this is, and a more obscure passage maybe than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I can't understand, and I cannot explain it. 
and there has been no one who has explained it. That's Martin Luther. I'm okay if I don't get it completely, if Martin Luther didn't get it completely. Here's a couple other quotes. The meaning of this phrase is much disputed. His words were no doubt clear to those who first heard them, but they have been hard for later generations to understand. In other words, the truth is the word says what the word says, and I'm not contesting that. The way we've read it has been, we've struggled with this at times. There will be people who will go back and forth on this. That isn't going to happen right now. I'm going to read it for you guys. I'm going to point out a couple things about it, and, and that can be a conversation for later. Definitely some great stuff to dig into in this. But I want us to see a bigger picture here. I want us to see how does this next passage help us in light of what we just read about suffering. So I'm going to read this passage, uh, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered. Okay, just talked about suffering. We are comparing now Christ suffered, you suffered. He's trying to remind us and encourage us. Christ also suffered once for sins. So it's been taken care of. His suffering and his death that one time was essential and enough for every, every sin that you commit from here on out. The righteous, so Jesus, for the unrighteous, us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. When he was at the cross, when he was put to death, he died. He legitimately died. But his godness never did. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This could get into a whole big discussion. What we need to understand as we walk away from this just briefly is that he went as God and proclaimed to those in prison. You'll, you can look in Genesis. There's references to um, some demons and some uh, fallen angels that had done some things with humans and they were imprisoned for in the abyss, okay? Most of the people I've read agree that this is probably what he's talking about. Either way, these are demons, Satan's people, that are in prison. He is crucified for our sins. He takes the wrath of God for our sins, and he goes down and proclaims. He says, it is finished. To tell us, die. It's over. We've done it. We, you are defeated. This is the spoiler for the rest of the Bible in 1 Peter. He's let us know that it's over right there. He tells them that. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the, the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So he's talking about Noah and the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. So he's now referring that baptism back to Noah and, and the water being brought safely through in the midst of all the sin that had been happening. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, again, a little bit confusing, but we need to take a couple thousand years off and go back in context. And again, I'm, I may not be doing this perfect justice. I just want you to guys to see a little bit more of like what this is. When we talk about baptism, we're talking about this concept of immersion and he was, it was kind of like a one-for-all deal at that time. Like when you, when you became saved, the next action you would take was to be baptized. It was, it was a, an outward showing of right then, this was you before, this is you in Christ. You died with him, you raised again. Some churches still do that. Upon salvation, 
Like, you get saved here, we're going we're gonna to dunk you right now. We're going to take you back. We're going to stop the service and do that whole thing. So when we see baptism here, he's not saying that baptism saves you because you'll find other passages that are going to go against that completely. He's not saying the act of baptism does. He's saying this all-in-one package of being saved and baptized, that's that moment. It's not washing dirt off you. It's washing sin off of you. And it saves you like, the, the, like Jesus saved those in the, boat, in the ark with Noah. And he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So, again, it's a difficult text. And we could get into all that stuff, but we don't want to because I want to go back and I want to see those items that we talked about before with suffering. How does this passage encourage those because of Christ's victory? So if we look at any text at all, and if you read a book of any kind, you want to look for the big themes so that you can try to start to understand it. The theme or idea of the section. So let's look at that. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered, and it says that he was put to death in the flesh, and he was made alive in the spirit. In verse 22, he takes us past both death and resurrection to tell us that he's gone into heaven. So Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but was made alive in the spirit, and now has gone up to heaven. The main idea is a victorious Christ. A Christ who has died, lived a life that we have lived, sinless, was crucified, died a legitimate death, and is now God reigning, having risen from the dead, is now reigning with his Father. We get this victory. He starts with Jesus' suffering, but ends with his ascension. He opens with his willful submission to unrighteous rulers, but by the time it closes, a complete reversal has taken place. You have this submissive son, because remember, he was God and man. He didn't, he hadn't done any, there was no sin in him. He didn't need to die, but he willingly went to the cross. He was submissive. Remember, in the passages before, we struggled with the idea that there was so much talk of submission, submission, submission. Christ was submissive to them and went to the point of death. He's, the, the, he's a submissive son, and by the end, he's the ruling king seated at the right hand of God. And everything now, all angels and authorities and powers are subject to him. He is now vindicated and now sits in heaven victorious. We can say that this text, as difficult as it is, is about Christ's victory and ascendant glory. And this is kind of the structure. You see that where he talks about be subject, be subject, and then we see at the end that's the case. So if we walk away with the most essential things in this section, I think it is, number one, he suffered and died. In submission to those that persecuted him, in submission to the Father, he had done nothing to deserve it. We are called to suffer for righteousness and to live and have a clean conscience, but we are also deserving of death. Yet he rescued us for nothing that we have done, but only his righteousness and his grace and his mercy did he do that. So Jesus suffered and died. We are walking through suffering. He can identify with our suffering. He suffered and died. We will at one point die. He preached to the spirits. And again, like I said, we don't know exactly what that looks like, but I know, I know it's here in the scriptures. He defeated death and was made alive in the spirit as God and went to the abyss where the spirits were, and he proclaimed victory. We know how this ends. We know that we could be proclaiming as well. We have a God who has already told us that, this, that we have won. We should be proclaiming this good news. He rose from the dead. He defeated death and conquered sin. And he ascended victorious to the right hand of God. And that's where our hope lies. Our hope lies in the fact that Jesus 
died and he can identify with our suffering. Now again, it, I said earlier that this is, the Christianity is a battleship, not a cruise ship. And, and the truth in advertising for this is that we know how the trip ends and we're going to be okay. But it's going to be a bumpy ride along the way. There will be points, if we are faithful to him, where we're going to suffer for righteousness. But we have an eternal hope. Jesus conquered death and is enthroned above at the right hand of the Father. And in that truth, we rest, even if we suffer for righteousness. He is our hope. I want to close with um, a passage in Revelation. Um, my friend Josh has got me hooked on this song, and it comes out of um, this passage in Revelation. And I think that this kind of sets us up for what happens because of this. Um, he is worthy of this. So if you go to Revelation 5 with me, um, I'm going to read this, this entire passage, but I think I, I, you need to, to hear it. And, and I think Josh actually taught on this a couple weeks back. And so I want you to hear it again. But I want you to think of it in light of the fact that we are currently in this temporal state of living here on earth, somewhere in between the salvation that we have and our eternal glorification with him. And we will suffer for doing the right things. We will suffer for being faithful to God. I want you to hear what it says in Revelation 5 as we prepare um, to spend some time worshiping. Verse, uh, Revelation 5, 1 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth under this earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll of its seven seals. That's Jesus. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. That's Jesus. And though it had been, as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering in myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to suffer for us. He deserved none of it. We deserved all of it. And in this time while we're here, 
I pray that we would be encouraged by the fact that Jesus can understand and can identify with the fact that we do suffer for righteousness. As we walk through this life and we follow you, we will suffer for righteousness. I pray that we would be encouraged by that knowledge that he knows, that he understands, and that we would be reminded of our inheritance, that as we are faithful to you and to your word, that we will one day be with you, seated there, shouting out, worthy, worthy is the lamb, for our sins were taken away. I pray that as we worship right now, that our hearts would be in tune with the fact that we are singing praises to our rescue, our Savior, our God. And I pray that as we end up walking out at the end of this, that we wouldn't, it wouldn't end here, that we would be, it would be burned on our hearts, the reminder that he is, that you are holy. The price that you paid by sending your son to die and to raise victorious for our sins was for the fact that we sinned and that you loved us regardless. I pray that as we spend these next few moments in worship, that our hearts would be tuned to you and that we would grow in our love for you. In your name we pray. Amen.